0: We're back.
1: This is Season 3 of Bantro over Cigarette, the variety-style talk podcast where we discuss the things that interest us amuse us, and piss us off, some of the latest news from gaming, entertainment, geek, and tech culture, as well as anything from the news we find fucked up. And as always, Bantro over Cigarette is manned by your hosts, Elden K.R. I am the Rush Limbaugh of new media. Well, except for the pillars. Benjamin Weaver. Oh, what's your job, Ben?
0: To sit in the corner and look cute and be funny.
1: You fail miserably at all of them. Yes, I do. I'm a Capricorn, I'm single, and uh, I love books and Kyle Games.
0: I've spent a very inanimate amount of time I think four or five days downloading 60 gigs of every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation.
1: Some or all of the episodes of over favorite may or may not contain offensive material, such as language. All I can say is what the fuck. I... Fuck CNN, nuts. Token retard my ass, you fucker. Sexual themes and innuendo. Remember, more than five spins. Well, I'll let you figure that for yourself. Something discovered chronic masturbation, and we might not see him for a while. Yeah, apparently he's discovered that men can have multiple orgasms as well.
0: So, he'll be dry and sore and bloody soon.
1: References to drug use and alcohol. We are going to do Jaeger and general rudeness so if you're the kind of person who finds any of that offensive or can't handle hearing the word fuck a couple dozen times in the course of 45 minutes i would suggest you turn this off right now yeah but no one listens to that that's why we to people off but at least we've covered our asses so let's get on with the show it's time to fuck some shit up So speaking of all the work you put into down from 10, what made you want to go with this high production value, the sound effects, the music, the voice actors, everything?
0: Well, initially it was, as I said, my love of radio drama, which I've always had, and um, listening to radio dramas three or four years old, I was just completely blown away, and I've never lost that sense of wonder with them, and um, it was between that and the fact that I write a lot of very strong, very distinct female characters. And I can't do. I can do one female voice, and I can't. <laughs> and uh, I have to use a pitch shifter. Um, I do Bridget, the the very prim and proper, easily offended English gentlewoman, and um, I have to use a pitch shifter to get her to not sound like me. And I just I couldn't imagine going through saying some of the things that that the female characters in my books say, like you know shouting at people and doing it in a way that was differentiatable enough to be uh, believable to the audience and to not sound like a cartoon stereotype. Um,
1: well, Sigler seems to be able to pull it off. Say what? Sigler seems to be able to pull it off. Yeah, but he's Sigler. He he's, he makes <laughs> a joke
0: of it. And, you know, Sigler's Sigler's female characters are... Just there, there are other people that are in the drama most of them aren't front and center most of them don't have a lot of screen time and the ones that do are usually acting as professionals, we don't see a lot of their personal lives, we don't see them in a lot of different contexts so he can really get away with it um, You know, Sig- right. Sigler writes, writes stories for, for boys, he writes stories for um, high school and college age men and for people who like stuff like Stephen King and for that He's not doing character studies, and for his genre, it works really, really well. For mine, not so well. I mean, in Down From Ten, I've got four female characters and four male characters, and more than 60% of the word count is dialogue, and probably a little over 50% of that dialogue is the female characters speaking and i just i can and a lot of it is them speaking to each other and you know how am i going to go from one female voice to another and they're doing crosstalk without really slowing it down by inserting a bunch of dialogue tags it, it just wouldn't work
1: right another thing that i really like when i'm listening to uh, your podcast novels especially in predestination was a lot of people when they do their podcast novel, they just go through with a straight read, and then if they ha- and then if they do extra stuff like sound effects and whatnot, it's the straight read with the voices and the sound effects and all that on top of it. But when you do your narrations, you actually put feeling and stuff into it.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: I like if it's a, if it's a really tense if it's a re- if it's a really tense moment in your story, you'll pick up the pace with your narration and stuff, and it really works. Mm-hmm.
0: Or if it's a really ominous moment, like the moment of the. Um the avalanche and down from ten where I talk about uh, talk about what's going on in the house and I talk about the avalanche coming down outside and as it keeps going in the tension builds I actually slow down until the house is finally silently buried. Um, yeah I, I've taken a lot of interpretive reading classes and Hung around with storytellers, and it's just that's just how I learned to read out loud as a performance rather than just as um, here are the words, m- do with them what you want. Um, it's, par- right. it's part of that loving the immersive experience thing.
1: Yeah, I, I, I really need to work on my narration before I start podcasting any kind of novel because I'm kind of all over the place. But mainly, when I narrate, I, I, I read the words out as if I'm the person in, in, in the story talking to somebody else mm-hmm. and I talk at a rather fast pace most of the time
0: right, um, I would suggest uh, go to your local community college and take an oral interpretation of literature course, um, you learn a lot of nice little tricks that way
1: and with um, huh, my brain just stopped Anyway, with um, Predestination and the upcoming uh, free will and the rest of the uh, stories in that progression, it's uh, mainly spy novel stuff, cloak and dagger type things. What recommendations would you have for somebody who wants to get into writing that spy novel type stuff but wouldn't really know where to start?
0: Um, There's a few things that you have to balance in order to write that and not make it a terrible cliché. One of them is Tradecraft, Um, You won't believe how many books and movies that are otherwise pretty good get the tradecraft wrong. The good thing is that the CIA actually has their tradecraft documentation publicly available you can read the CIA manuals on how to do a dead drop on how to gather intelligence from a newscast on how to do intelligence analysis on this and that on how to secure communications reading the CIA and the N- and the NSA documentation on these things extremely valuable and I highly recommend it there's also books written by people who were spies during the Cold War and during World War II. One of the best is, uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called Spycatcher, and it's about, uh, it's written by the guy who used to be the assistant head of MI6. And he oh. talks about the internal culture of the of the organization. He talks about how operations ran. He actually had to move out of England and into Australia and get the Australian courts to um, stand in the way of England trying to extradite him and try him for treason for b- violating the Official Secrets Act. So Damn. that's an extremely good resource. But you need... The um, the whole problem with spy novels that... Um, it, with, with spy anything, uh, books, movies, stories, is that spies seem really sexy, like we've all seen James Bond, right? James Bond wouldn't oh. last five minutes in the real world. And the... Um, It's kind of a cartoon version of what spies really do. And there's a a whole culture and mindset that goes with spying on people, betraying them, getting their secrets, and working towards what you believe is the greater good. And without capturing that mindset, you're going to it's going to wind up coming off more or less just like a regular adventure story that has some spy trappings like a a James Bond story does so if you're interested in doing it in a way that you won't get fans who have worked with or have worked in intelligence calling you up and saying man you are so full of shit you need to um, you need to immerse yourself in that whole spy thing Uh, one of the uh, one of the best writers that does that fiction writers that does that is Jean Le Carré never heard of of him really really good writer i would recommend the russia house and tinker taylor soldier spy um, two of his best books But
1: yeah, so uh, every writer when they are uh writing something that they're not really familiar with they always have some guy they can go to and say hey is this how it really works mm-hmm. um so do you have any kind of Spy friends or whatnot that you have questions about when you're writing stuff for Predestination? Well, if or I, I, if well? I
0: did, I certainly couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait a minute, maybe you're a <laughs> spy. <laughs> no, I'm not. That I I can tell you that sure. I'm not because I'm actually not. Um, right. But uh, no the whole the whole trade craft of espionage is actually since the end of the Cold War a lot of information has come out, so it's not difficult to find people who used to be spies or people who are experts in the history of espionage to vet and fact-check things with. And again, like I said, there's the CIA manuals and there's the NSA manuals and you can even get some KGB manuals now. Um, and it's just knowing the culture and being able to run it by other people, even really enthusiastic hobbyists who know the culture. Um, is a good way to do it if you don't have access to a real spy. Actually, it can be better because a real spy is going to be limited in what he can tell you. Um, even even with stuff that's on the public record, I'll give you a good example. Christopher Lee, during World War II, was an assassin. You know, the, the movie star. During World War II, he was one of the guys. Britain ran a clandestine operation that is still classified in Britain, but enough people have talked about it after they moved out of Britain. That, um, where they they had this list of Nazis that they didn't have enough evidence to charge at Nuremberg that they wanted to kill so they sent out commando teams to go into the refugee camps find these people and kill them Christopher Lee was one of these people that did the that did the finding them and killing them bit when he was on Lord of the Rings you remember um, that that scene where Saruman gets killed right He's stabbed in the back by Wormtongue and thrown off of the of the tower Well, if you listen to the commentary on that, uh... the commentary track by Peter Jackson on the special edition of Return of the King, he talks about how they kept doing take after take after take after take of that scene because Christopher Lee would not give the kind of agonized scream that Peter Jackson wanted him to give. Until finally, Christopher Lee got very angry with him and took him aside and said, Peter that's not the sound someone makes when, um, when they get stabbed in the back and Peter said well how would you know and Christopher Lee said I can't tell you that I'm still bound by the official secrets act <laughs> and Peter Jackson went oh and remembered that Christopher Lee had been in the uh, SAS or what became the SAS during World War II <laughs> and kind of put, put two and two together and figured out that Christopher Lee had either seen someone stabbed in the back or had stabbed someone in the back and decided to drop the issue and move on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that, that, that's, that's got to be really epic. Hey, man, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, well, how would you know? <laughs> uh, if I told you, that I'd have to kill you. Okay, Basically, never yeah. mind. Keep rolling, guys.
0: <laughs> Basically, uh, yep.
1: <laughs> oh. Right, so for Down From Ten and Predestination and the upcoming free will, Danny Shade does all of your music? Yes. Well, um, where do you acquire the sound effects and such that you use for your podcast? Are there some that you get online? Do you make your own sound effects?
0: How do you make that work? Yes, both. I get get quite a lot off of free sound, and we also make quite a few here. Um, Kitty and I are both Foley artists. Kitty Nakian is my partner. In uh, crime, on this, she produces the shows. She plays Harrowley on the Schismatic Reprobates Hour, and she's actually playing Katie in Down from Ten, one of the lead roles. But um, she and I have both been doing foley for about as long as we've been doing audio production. So she helps me uh, put together a lot of the sound effects we can't find um, on Free Sound, and then quite frequently I'll take sound effects from Free Sound and sound effects we've made here and mash them up together to create environments like I did with the um, at the beginning of episode 14 in predestination the loading dock on the moon where we first meet Volish that you know that sound bed there that took me about five or six hours to put together because I had to do the stereo panning you know forklifts driving through big industrial sounds clamps engaging um, smaller sounds of people walking around all that stuff Um, and that's just that's a very you know that's that's a pretty complex stack of stuff that I got a free sound stuff that uh, we put together here, um, and then stuff I did with my own voice.
1: And all of that took five hours? Mm Mm-hmm. And the scene lasted how long?
0: Five minutes, if that.
1: Uh, See, uh, a lot of listeners out there take all of the uh, noises and such you put into your work for granted and and be like, hey, this sounds really cool, but now they know how much work you actually put into it. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, and that one, you know, that one was even a little more than usual, just because having worked in shipping at one point, I know what a loading dock sounds like, and I know from having read enough about uh, NASA procedures and how tr- sound works in different uh, different atmospheric concentrations and having been at different altitudes, I could extrapolate what would be different with a loading dock in in space. So I had a very specific um, very specific sound in mind, and I basically just kept tweaking it until I got what I was looking for. I
1: think you mentioned in one of your feedback shows that there is a certain uh, skull-cracking noise in one of the episodes yeah. of uh, Predestination.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: That I think I'll let you take this one from here.
0: Was making a film called Hunting Kestrel, which alas never saw the light of day because it was my first feature and I bit off way more than I could chew. But uh the uh, hunting Kestrel has become book five of the antithesis progression predation and other acts of mercy. but when we were on um, on set, I couldn't afford insurance for stunt people, and for most of the time that was okay because we could stage the stunts in ways that were very cheap uh, very safe using camera tricks. But there was this one particular stunt where a generic thug like bad guy had to get kicked in the face, do a side, um, a side roll flip on, and lay out onto concrete, and then get hit in the chest with a heavy steel bar. And I didn't have, this is a dangerous stunt, and I didn't have anyone that was that good, and I didn't have the insurance to pay for anyone that was that good. So I decided I needed to do it, I needed to do it myself. Of course, I was running a 105 degree fever at the time. I was very Mm -hmm. sick. And about along the 5th take, the actor I was working with kept missing his mark because of a very complex series of motions and usually something like this will take an hour or two and you do 10 or 20 takes until you get it right and then you do another 10 or 20 takes to get it right from a second angle problem was after about 5 takes, this guy was starting to get really confused and he missed my chest I, had, I, was, wearing, um, I was wearing some very, very hard martial arts padding on my chest so I'd be fine he missed my chest and he got my head. And he got it full on because he wasn't checking his swings properly. And the steel bar cracked my head and whipped my head back down onto the concrete. And God, that hurt. Um, and th- on the camera, I got an audible skull cracking noise. As very It's amazing I didn't get a concussion from it, but I didn't. Uh, Cause he hit just the right point on the front of my head where the bone is the thickest, so he didn't actually do any permanent damage. Though I was dizzy for about 20 minutes, and we wound up cutting the stunt because I didn't want to risk doing that again. But uh, that sound wow. has that sound has made it into more of a few more than a few productions, here and there as a as a wound sound. Wow. So you can literally say that
1: you have suffered for your art.
0: Oh, in more ways than one. But yeah, that's one of the most dramatic ways.
1: Wow. So, all of this work that you put forth, how well is it re- received by listeners out there in the potosphere and uh, corresponding internet lands?
0: Well, it's doing pretty well. Um, I've got, uh, I'm up to about 1,500 listeners on predestination. I've got about 1,400 on down from 10, which is really exciting because I've only just started it. Um, I've got a podcast nomination this year. I'm a Parsec nomination this year. I'm really hoping that I win. Um, it's going really well. I'm getting very good feedback and I'm slowly learning how to do the internet marketing things so that I get more people coming to listen. Um, I occasionally get the the less than complimentary email and even better i get uh... constructive criticisms where you know people say wait i noticed you you flubbed this fact about life in space you need to fix that or i'm confused about this because it would seem to me that it works this way and sometimes they're right and it really helps with revising for publication and sometimes they're wrong but when they're wrong it makes for great um, great fodder on the feedback shows to explore the issues that uh, that the misperception raises so um, I've got a very right. good dialogue with my fans, and I really enjoy it. And there's always death threats. Mm, and the death threats, yes. Yeah, I started Th- the There's death been ra- no
1: danger of you going to
0: Winnipeg yet, is there? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not going to Winnipeg, despite what David Deswieric <laughs> wants me to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got a, uh, I've got a running gag where you can send in death threats, and I'll read them on the air, and, uh... It originally started out as a joke because I was doing the Reprobate's Hour, and on the Reprobate's Hour, one of the things with the show is I tend to get people who criticize um, parts of popular culture or popular philosophy that they think are wrong. Um, I don't always agree with them, but it's fun to have people around that that, that poke at your pet beliefs and force you to re-examine things. But when you poke at people's pet beliefs, it tends to piss them off. So I joke, on Reprobate's Hour, I jokingly started soliciting death threats. I said, you know, send in questions, comments, or death threats to the feedback line. And in, um, so when I got to doing predestination, I thought, well, you know, just asking for feedback. That's kind of boring. Everyone does that. So I started asking for questions, comments, criticisms, boys, and death threats. And just left it there as a joke. Well, people started sending them in. When, I would, when something in the story would happen to a character they really liked that made them angry at me, or, um, or whatnot, or when they were angry at me for cliffhangering them, because every episode does end with a cliffhanger. Um,
1: yeah, I, I, that, that got to me
0: sometimes. <laughs> so people would send I was a in by that. very creative death threats involving time paradoxes and shoving flaming armadillos down my pants. and God, so many good death threats. And it's become, become quite a game. That, uh, is quite a yeah
1: I, I think that I, I think there was this one death threat that I heard in a feedback show where one of your listeners took all of the death threats you'd presently received and found some way to weave them all together
0: yeah that was pretty epic
1: <laughs> yeah I don't think I'd ever seen a death threat because I'd rather you not see it coming <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Um, So with um, Predestination and Free Will, Sculpting God, Down from Tenet, etc., what sort of demographics were you hoping to reach with each one of those?
0: Well, Predestination and Free Will are, um, they're spy novels. They're they're fairly adult-oriented, not just in the sense that they've got a lot of violence and darkness, but the kinds of things they deal with seem to appeal mostly to people, um... near the tail end of college though I've got a a healthy amount of uh, adolescent listeners too, which surprised me Um, I'd say just general adult audience Um, anywhere between like 18 and 50 I seem to have a very wide range of listeners, Um, down from 10 seems to be biasing both a little bit younger because there's more sex in comedy and a little bit older because the characters are for the most part in their 30s and they're dealing with the kinds of things that people in their 30s deal with So, you know, general adult audience is definitely not for children. Um, I'm working on a book with Philippa Valentine later this year that will be much more kid-oriented. What's it going to be called? It's going to be called The Automotive, and it's a steampunk um, urban fantasy. That sound is really annoying, man. (laughs) I can't even hear myself think over that. Um,
1: I'm sorry. One of my hosts is still bothering me, and he refuses to join in on the conversation.
0: I'll tell him to shut up if he's not going to join in. <laughs> so yeah, Steampunk Urban Fantasy um, takes place in San Francisco, and uh, we're writing that this, uh, this December and January. We don't know if it's going to be a podcast or a print book yet, but uh, either way it should be, um, or both, but either way it should be quite a lot of fun.
1: Oh well, you could always go up T and Pip are taking and do what they're doing with books and braun. Well,
0: that's the thing they don't know what they're doing with books and brawn yet.
1: Well, I heard they were gonna uh, charge money for it or something.
0: Um, that was the original uh notion, yeah, but um their uh, Pip's agent really likes it and wants to try to sell it, so at the moment they're kind of in a in a holding pattern to figure out if they're gonna do it as a subscription based podcast or if they're going to do it as a novel or if they're going to do some kind of cross media thing or what
1: ah. And where your and where has your biggest surge of listeners come from in your podcasts?
0: Um hell if I know. They seem to just trickle in, you know, I pop on a pop on a show somewhere and they come over to see what's going on. It's there's no one place. They they seem to trickle in at a steady rate. I get about between 50 and 100 new listeners uh, every week or two Um, the word is gradually spreading and I'm learning you know, learning as I go
1: so like uh, most podcasters out there uh, do you happen to have any aspirations for taking over the world or anything like that?
0: well, my my bio on my website says that I'm attempting to build a cult in my own honor Um. (laughs) I I think you could pull that off Taking over the world? You seem to have plenty of crack, crack addicted monkeys yeah. out there. Taking over the world? I don't know. It seems more like Sigler's kind of thing. Honestly, I've um, I've done enough in the way of of managing actors and managing sh- in a short term way managing companies that I don't really want the responsibility of running the world. Seems like a seems like a sucker's job to me. <laughs>
1: Um, but, yeah, speaking of that updated bio of yours on the website, uh, that picture you put
0: up makes you look kind of like a werewolf hunter. Werewolf hunter, that's interesting. Everyone has a different reaction to that. Um, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, I, I I took that because I got the watch, and I was like, oh, I've got to use this watch in a headshot. So went out to the parking lot in front of my apartment complex and took a cigar and the watch and the hat and took the picture.
1: That is a really nice hat, by the way. Thank you. So, uh, speaking of being able to f- afford watches and nice hats and cigars and such, what do you do outside of podcasting to keep your bill um, paid?
0: I write articles, and I do audio and video production and photography. Awesome.
1: awesome. Mm-hmm. Speaking of photography, didn't the original cover art for um, Predestination, Predestination get banned on MySpace?
0: Did it? I didn't hear about that. Well, or if I did, well, I forgot Oh, I think you it.
1: mentioned it in... You, I think you, you either mentioned it in a feedback show or in uh, one of the after-banter talks from uh, Predestination. Oh, okay, well,
0: I guess it did. I honestly, if I did, it didn't stick with me. So, it might have. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of racy. Well, I've, I've, I've seen racier on MySpace. Well, I mean, it is MySpace
1: especially back in the back in the heyday four or five years ago when it was really popular and everybody was on it and you could get a tv show just because you had a million friends on right. myspace so what advice do you have for anybody out there who is looking to start their own podcast
0: um get your shit together um you have Releasing at some kind of a uh, dependable interval is very important. The few times that I've not been able to keep up my schedule, I've at least temporarily lost listeners. People have just kind of forgotten about me and not come back around and check for quite a while. Um, don't go podcasting something that you wouldn't send to a publisher um, if you're talking about fiction, because what with people like Scott Sigler and Philippa Ballantyne out there we have professional authors in the space who are attracting listeners and people pretty much have a high quality expectation have your shit together and um, know what you're up to um, make sure your production is fairly clean it doesn't have to be super fancy like mine but um, you know I mean bad production while good production cannot save bad writing, bad production can ruin good writing Um, there's one podcast novel and I won't mention the name that I really loved it was fucking hysterical I was looking forward to it every week but I could not listen to it and be in the same room because they had uh, in trying to reduce the noise the background noise what they had done essentially was just insert silence in between every phrase so you heard the background noise kick in every time someone spoke and it drove me bonkers what I had to do was turn it on really loud in the other room, close the door, and let the walls in between filter it enough that I could just listen to it without freaking out because the noise level was going up and down. <laughs> um, and that is... And, and of the of the handful of patio books that I've tried to listen to that have had really bad production, that's the only one I made it through, and the only reason is because the writing was so damn good. Um... Make mm. sure your production is consistent. And consistent quality is much more important than spectacular quality. Because the human ear will tune right. out um, a constant noise level. It might wear the ear out, but the human ear will tune out a constant noise level and just tune into the voice. But if you've got fluctuating background noise levels, or you've got a reader that is talking in that reader rhythm so that they're always very soothing no matter what they do. It'll put you to sleep no matter how exciting the words are. Um, just, it's really the difference between a bad podcast fiction experience and a good podcast fiction experience in terms of production is it's not that hard to achieve good, but the difference in the listener experience is night and day.
1: Another thing that I've noticed is that uh, there's all these different kinds of podcasts out there, fiction or otherwise. So more or less instead of writing your message down, putting it in a bottle and throwing it out into the ocean, you're writing your message putting it in a bottle and throwing it out there with a whole lot of other bottles and the pool is empty. Yeah, sometimes. you have to you have, so, to, uh, you have
0: to distinguish yourself in the writing you have to have a unique voice or a unique story. Now unique doesn't mean no one's ever done it before because everything, everything has been done before. Unique means that there is enough of you to make it distinctive. You know, millions of people, or, well, probably millions of people in the history of the world have played the violin, but you know Yo-Yo Ma when you hear him. Thousands of people or millions of people have played the guitar, but you always know Clapton. You always know Paige. You can tell by the way they deal with their instrument. Having a unique voice is very important in writing. Um, and then self-promotion. You've got, you've got to build relationships within the community. You've got to build relationships with your audience. Um, you have to make yourself a brand name, which sounds a bit cynical and dehumanizing, but it's true. People will gravitate towards that which they know over that which they don't, because that which they know is familiar and comfortable. And there's dozens of, of real, you know, of, of very well-conducted psychological studies attesting to the fact that people will gravitate towards the familiar over the unfamiliar. Familiar doesn't necessarily mean they know it already. Familiar means that something about it feels like home. And if you're going to be giving them a unique exotic experience, there has to be a place for them in that exotic experience to kind of hang their hat. Um, It's one of the problems I had with the early episodes of Predestination. Quite frankly, the early episodes tend to weed out a lot of listeners because... um, it's a very dark story and a lot of people don't like really dark entertainment. I un- I understood that going in. Predestination is a dark story. Um, dealing with people who don't trust each other, who can't afford to trust each other even when they want to, makes it em- an emotionally difficult experience for some listeners. And I've gotten emails saying, look, your your writing is really good, but I just can't listen to it. It's You know, there's not enough in there that that I can enjoy without feeling anxious about. And I completely understand that. Um, I wrote wrote that story and I'm writing that series for a very particular demographic. It's the demographic that likes to deal with really chewy, um, emotional, philosophical themes. The kind of stuff that uh, you don't really necessarily want to take home at the end of the day. Down From Ten is a bit different. It's lighter, it's designed to appeal to more people, um, It's and it's got a broader base of appeal. And again, I was expecting that. So know who you're... It's ru- probably because there's more, more. self about no, I'm sure it. that doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> but but <and> there's more <laughs>, laughs. I mean, Down From Ten feels like you're at a party with people that you might want to hang out at a party with. And even if they're not necessarily people you'd want to hang out at a party with, they're funny, and it's just kind of a, a bit of a... Uh, A bit of a Big Brother aspect, you know, what are they going to do next? Who's going to say the next crazy thing? And that's got its own kind of appeal. But you need to make sure that when you're writing, you have, your writing is accessible to someone who doesn't know you. Um, You're having a conversation with the audience. You're not just talking to hear yourself talk. And that's very, very important for making yourself distinctive.
1: Right. So most people in the podcasting community like uh, most people that everybody listens to, it all seems like a really close knit community. How did you go from just one guy screaming into a vacuum to one of the gang?
0: Um I emailed people. <laughs> I had sculpt. I started right. out with Sculpting God and the reprobates I were out there. First thing I did was I interviewed some people that I thought I might want to pick their brains on when I got to fiction podcasting. I interviewed them on the Reprobate's Hour, so there was some kind of precedent. They knew who I was if I emailed them, and then I made sure not to trespass on their time unless I knew how to ask a question that was going to be that wasn't going to take them a lot of time, but was going to help me a lot. Um, because you got to remember, anyone out there who's got more than about three or four hundred fans, they're going to be dealing with between with at least three emails a day from fans who want or and Twitters who want to know this, want to know that, want to talk to you, want to be your best friend. And there's only so much of a person to go around. So, you know, I, I knew I needed to build relationships in the community, so I went to it. And I think doing the sound, doing the audio and video production for the last several years has helped because I've dealt with famous people, so I understand how limited their time is. So, wow. um... I went into, you know, when I asked Pip for help, I said, Hi Pip, my name is Dan Sawyer. Um, I interviewed you on Reprobate's Hour. Oh wait, this was before I even interviewed her. I said, This is Dan Sawyer. You can find some of my fiction at uh, Sculpting God. Take a listen. I've got this small role that I'd like you to play. The time commitment on it is X. The schedule for delivery is Y. This is a description of the character. Would you be willing to jump in? And that was basically it. I made sure when I went and asked people to work with me and I still do this even though a lot of these people are now my friends um, of doing the pre prep so that there is as little in the way of wrangling necessary they know exactly what's being asked of them there's no surprises um, they can see if they've got the time to commit or not and if they don't it's no big deal and if they do it's fun to work with them um, approaching it like a business relationship rather than like um, you know you're my best friend and i want to spend time with you or i really you know i'm your fan and i want a piece of your time makes all the difference in the world in terms of building networking friendships can grow out of professional relationships and professional relationships can grow out, grow out of friendships but it's much more awkward and difficult to try to build a personal relationship from a fan relationship not to say it doesn't happen but right. but it's just it's it's a it's a strategy that, that respects the time and the expertise of the people who you're going to be asking for help from.
1: Yeah, that's one thing that I've noticed. The podcasting community, it's really easy to get connected, to, uh, connected into because a lot of the people who uh, are in the podcasting community are really nice people and you know genuinely open, unlike a lot of places like... Um, I, I spent a lot of time before I discovered podcasting on YouTube and making videos on YouTube and, and stuff like that, and, like, all the people who have a lot of views on YouTube are trying to get acting careers out of the whole thing, and they're like, I don't have time for you, I'm making videos on YouTube, and I've got 100,000 views, and ooh." and it's kind of off-putting, and then I experienced a, a bit of that when I was working with musicians in Dallas, and by far I've found that the, uh podcast community is like just one of the easiest ones
0: to get connected into um and i don't think it's because people in the podcasting community are just that much nicer um i think the medium of podcasting does a couple of things it allows for interaction that doesn't eat your life um and there's a much slower build in terms of fame than you have in at places like youtube or in the music business and whatnot so the people who are doing it have the podcasters have more time to adapt to more fan mail more requests for their time more commitments to this and that and when you have more time to adapt to it as it's building you can figure out ways to cope with it where you're not being an asshole Um, and there are times you know there are times when you have to be an asshole you try not to do it very often because a no one likes to do that At least most people don't like to be an asshole. And B, it's not good PR. (laughs) Um, Most of the people who want a slice of your time are doing it because you've really touched them with something you've done. And that's really cool. And it's very flattering. But um, when you're coming into it from the outside and you're starting into the community, one of the things you've got to remember is the people on the other side of the microphone who you're hearing every day, they don't know you. And the Pete and and the version of them you hear on mic is not necessarily the version of them that's the real them. It's very easy to assume. Um, it, this happens to musicians all the time too, because you know, writing lyrics, performing music is a very personal kind of art form. It's very easy to assume that you know somebody who you've never met. And from the perspective of the person, uh, from the perspective of the podcaster, that can be very off-putting, because it's like, well, who are you? You know, where'd you come from? It's very good to connect with someone. It, it's wonderful to hear, you know, you've you've you know you made you made my commute bearable. Wonderful thing to hear. It means you're doing something that connects with people. It's great. Um You've made my commute bearable and now I want to move into your house. Eh, not so great. You know? <laughs> um but with yeah, with podcasting there are a lot of ways to connect that 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 are a much lower demand on the podcasters time than say inviting someone at a concert uh, uh, the band members at a concert out to coffee afterwards even though they've got another gig they've got to go to and um, because it's email you don't always have to respond the same day it's good when you do but if you don't have time this week the email is still there and you can get back and say honestly I'm sorry I've been really busy it was good to hear from you here's the answers to your questions um, and I right. think that's the reason that podcasters tend to be more accessible than other public figures and I honestly don't know how long you know, what the threshold is where that's, where that's going to break and things will change um, Sigler's managed to do a very good job of remaining accessible even though if he let them his fans would eat his life um, so it can be done whether it's going to be something that everyone can do based on their own personalities I don't know yet it's going to be interesting to see Um, I actually don't know where I'm going to fall in that. Um, I hope I wind up being one of the people that's accessible forever, but I do have to be able to defend the time I spend with my partner and the time I spend with my friends and the time I spend writing to produce the next thing that everyone will hopefully enjoy.
1: What kind of so what kind of changes do you think we'll see in podcasting in, like, the next ten years or so, and how do you think that uh, podcasting and new media can affect traditional publishing? I have no idea.
0: <laughs> That's the God's honest truth. Any any predictions from anybody at this point are pointless. The landscape is changing fast. It may be that in two years there is no niche for podcasting, or it may be that podcasting has become the primary channel. It... The, The number of contingencies built into that question are so vast that there's just absolutely no way to answer it, honestly.
1: Right. I mean, if you look at it this way, back when Sigler and T. Morris and those guys started doing their thing where they're like, I'm going to read my book a few chapters a week and give it away for free, and nobody knew what the Hell of Fiction podcast Mm -hmm. was back then, but look at it now.
0: Yep, it's it's become something really special, and like I said, I hope it persists. I really enjoy it. Um, it's gonna a lot of see the thing. Is, the reason it's very hard to predict is a you can never predict. You can guess, and you can make educated guesses, but you can never predict where the market's gonna go. And the market for entertainment is notoriously fickle. Um, the other thing is technology changes so fast. Um, we don't notice it because we're used to it, um, as consumers. You know, we're used to, oh, well, you know, VHS is a thing of the past, let's do DVD. Well, DVD, not that great. Let's do, um, Blu-ray. But, you know, those are decadal changes that we notice, but what you notice when you're in the other end of it, whether you're maintaining equipment or you're looking at the advance of medical technology or you're looking just at the advance of the production technology, the, um, the computing power doubles at least every 18 months the bandwidth explodes politics geopolitics right now are very unstable that affects what you can say in public sometimes um, if you don't want to get knifed in the back like Theo van Gogh um, it's a very complex rapidly changing world we're in right now as pieces of as parts of the world are struggling to make it into the modern age and other parts are. S- are moving beyond the modern age we're at the kind of place in history that we were at the beginning of the 19th or at the beginning of the 20th century it could go any direction and whichever direction it all goes is going to have an effect on how podcasting works Um, so I don't know and I don't think anyone else does either
1: well uh, when do you think we'll make uh, first contact with aliens (laughs) then
0: Um, probably never or, um... No, no, I'm serious. <laughs> Which is not to say I don't think there might be aliens out there. I think it's probably fairly likely. But uh, until, Unless and until we discover faster-than-light travel, um, alien life on the scale of bigger than a microbe or very small animals within our own solar system is not going to happen. So, a few hundred years at least, maybe a couple thousand years, who knows. The likelihood of us, even if we, if we meet a civilization rather than just, you know, animal life. Meeting a civilization is extremely unlikely even when we get faster than light travel. And here's why. The universe is 13, 14 billion years old. The galaxy is at least 9 or 10 billion years old. We've acquired the ability to communicate by radio and to fly into space in the last 100 years. It's a very narrow window of time measured against the history of the universe. And we've evolutionarily developed to this point fairly late in the game as far as we know. The odds that we'll meet another civilization that is anywhere close to our own level of technological development are so astronomical as to be ridiculous. We may may run into them, but if we do, it's going to be either civilizations that are way behind us or civilizations that are, way, that are so far in front of us that they look like gods to us, or they view us kind of the way we would view ants. Um, cool. the only, I think the only reasonable chance that we'd have for running into a similar-level technological civilization is if we had a period where we had interstellar travel, then lost it, then got it back. And in the interim colonies of humans in other solar systems continued to develop, and then we crashed back into each other a few hundred years later.
1: That makes sense. Personally, I'm still waiting on my jetpack and rocket
0: car. <laughs> well, they do exist, but the problem is... well I'll tell you, the problem with flying cars, man, is look at the World Trade Center. The, pro- <laughs> the, the problem with a <laughs> flying car is not that it's difficult to fly, it's not that it's difficult to operate, it's that minor mistakes mean that you're not just putting yourself at risk you're putting everyone on the ground under you at risk that's why pilot's licenses are so difficult to obtain why you have to go through so many hundreds of hours of training and i don't think that's going to change as flying technology becomes cheaper easier like they have with ultralights and whatnot you're still going to have to go through some pretty tough qualifications to make it and you know you got vision problems, you got equilibrium problems, you got narcolepsy, you're not going to be able to get, uh, to get a license. I, I know I'm kind of taking the wind out of some of your sails, but I'm, I'm kind of relentlessly grounded. It's one of the things that gives my science fiction its flavor, is I'm looking at not just what's possible, but what's likely given the way that humans react to technological developments. Okay, well, how about time travel? It all depends on who's right about uh, quantum mechanics and relativity. I don't know, Ian. I know enough about the different schools of thought to know that I don't know enough to speculate.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Being surprised is very fun. And I've got a host who's antsy to talk to me, and we're running a bit long, so how about you tell all the people listening to this how they can get in touch with you?
0: Hey you can find all of my stuff at www.jdsawyer.net. You can follow me on Twitter at D uh, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at D Sawyer and I'm pretty accessible. You can uh, I'll be on patio Books soon with predestination. I finally uh, I think I've finally gotten a spot on the calendar for September. And um, yeah, that's it if you want any of my podcasts, they're all linked to on the right sidebar at jd So that's pretty much that
1: was awesome it was great having you on the show dan thanks for showing up
0: Yeah, you're welcome thanks for having me
1: all right and that's all we have for today so for everybody out there listening this is eldon kr signing off saying i don't have cancer so i'm not stopping been listening to Season 3 of Bantrover Cigarette with your hosts, Eldon K.R., Ben Weaver, and Kyle Gant. For more information and additional podcasts, please go to voacblogcast.wordpress.com. Bantrover Cigarette Season 3 was recorded in the year 2009, courtesy of Incendiary Media Podcasting. Intro music for Season 3 is Ill Business, provided with permission courtesy of local Indiana band, Once a Friend. For more of their music, please go to myspace.com slash Outro music for Season 3 is Watersport, provided with permission courtesy of Libertine Leech from his 2007 album, The Trophy the For more of his music, please go to myspace.com slash Additional audio editing and sound effects provided by Dollar J. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend. We'd also appreciate it if you left feedback about the show. If you would like to leave feedback, you can always leave comments on the blog or leave us an iTunes review. You can also call our K7 voicemail line, which is
0: 206-202-5624. Thank
1: you for listening. And then
0: never listen to the show again.